Viewer discretion is advised. Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. In the Car Nose Picker. Mr. In the Car Nose Picker. For you, the daily commute isn't simply a drive to the office. It's a hands-on exploration deep into your schnoz. I'm going in now. With pinpoint accuracy and sheer determination, you dig for boogers like miners dig for gold. Hit the jackpot. And why do you do it? Because the windows are up and you think we can't see you. We can. How you doing? So crack open a nice cold Bud Light, oh nabber of the nose nugget. We'd like to shake your hand, but you'll have to wash it first. Mr. Bud Light Beer, and I suppose St. Louis, Missouri. McCarver pops up. Here's Freehan. Detroit, the new world champion. And look at Freehan picking up Lulich. And there is a scene that has been repeated many times in World Series history. It's a happy bunch of Tigers. They have beaten the Cardinals 4-1. And they have replaced them as the champions of baseball. And they made some comeback. They were trailing three games to one. They were behind three runs in the first inning of game five. They came back to win. They walked in here and murdered the Cardinals yesterday. They win again today. And 28-year-old Mickey Lowish now has joined Christy Matthewson, Jack Toombs, Babe Adams, Stan Kovaleski, Harry Burkeen, Lou Burdett, and Bob Gibson as pitchers who have won three games and lost none in a World Series. And Lolich did it with two days rest and beat Bob Gibson to do it. Tigers won the series Tigers 
Yo, those other parts are so so I'm too like bro, yo Focus like a GoPro Ripping up this promo Check out the scoreboard Freaks, I'm throwing no-nos It's going, it's going, it's going Yo, it's gone Your heart just stopped Cause Jake got strong and mighty Undefeated, I mean it Pull up the pod, scroll it down and read it Written, produced, directed, and mixed Don't on your lips and Ozzy Smith back lips Pick a tip, any tip, get onto it I got ridiculous pods without forcing it You sit at home crying like a girl While I spread the gospel well, around the world, yo, the pods are written behind tracks that mixed in smooth with the groove to make ears want to listen at a little gut and a rhythm to back it up. Another show to my name, I'm on the stack him up. You think another white rap bag, but this ain't no act jack. My hobby's to rock, so people try to be black, but that about time I come out, call the show BKP and let me turn it out, yo. Nick, Jake the Snake, border 71. Gates, you know what time it is, I'm packing them guns. Yo, experience, I've been a witness to glory, and that's why I collect ball players. And their stories. You heard? So, once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson, from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Pauly's Island, South Kakalucky. Half man, half podcast machine. Back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's Gucci Baseball Universe? What's good? Welcome back to my dojo, you freaks. Hello, everybody. I'm Jake Robinson. I got your hookup. Holler if you hear me. And this is my third show to you guys in the past seven days, Seamheads. The 2023 season is coming down the stretch. And BKP is a runaway freight train getting faster and faster. This is Backwards K-Pod where we collect ballplayers and their stories. And every week I like to take these deep dives into the characters, moments, stadiums, and the pop culture references of the beautiful game of baseball that have been woven and stitched throughout time into the DNA and fabric of America's history. My number one mission before I draw my last breath in this world is to preach the gospel of baseball to all the CMNs around the world. Leave behind and hand down this amazing gift that was 
handed to me one time. There are still around 20 games left to play in the 2023 Major League Baseball season. Teams are in that final push looking to play their most consistent baseball of the year for the stretch run. We've hit the playoff outlook here in the last two weeks, and really not much has changed, so... Not a lot of pregame banner this week. I'm going to sit back, enjoy watching it all shake out. And we'll get into it more as teams collect divisional pennants. As of now, the Atlanta Braves are the first and only team to clinch a playoff berth. But I think the Orioles' magic number is four as I record this. I see the catcher has thrown the ball down. The infield is throwing that rock around the diamond. The umpires yell play ball. If I could get you to kiss and hug your loved ones goodbye so I can clear the platform here at Terrapin Station, I'd like to call all aboard and load up our time travel BKP Chucho and set our time and destination for September 12, 1940. 83 years ago today, as I drop this to be exact, our destination is Portland, Oregon, as we will watch the rise of one of the most popular players in Detroit Tigers history, Roly-Poly Mickey Lowlands. So, grab yourself a seat anywhere, open your kimonos with me, let's get real comfortable as I get after it and tell you the story of this amazing pitcher and personality on September 15, 2002. The St. Louis Cardinals veteran battery of Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina broke the MLB record for regular season starts together with their 325th start. The duo topped the previous record set by Tigers southpaw hurler Mickey Lolich and his trusty catcher Bill Freehand. The two held the record since August 4th, 1975, winning their 317th start together. They passed the previous mark that was set by Hall of Famers Warren Spahn and his receiver Del Crandall for the Boston and Milwaukee Braves. In a publication of Sports Magazine, a 1968 article here, uh, Freehand was transparent about the sustained success of the duo when he said that Lowledge is a pitcher who Needs his confidence attended to. He is at his best when he feels like he is in total control of the game. My job was to get him in that mindset. On April 24th, 1964, the two would partner up for the very first time, beginning their 11-year dance together. With Lolich, the type A athlete stud who may need to have his confidence and ego stroked every once in a while during you know a long 162-game schedule. And... Bill Freehand, the catcher, serving as the game's uh, the game day psychiatrist with a left-hander, the two would go on to be one of the most stable and successful battery mates in the history of Major League Baseball. Mickey Lolich has described himself as a beer drinker's idol. With his portly physique and likable disposition, the hurler was a Tigers fan favorite during his 13 years of playing with the old English D on his hat. As lovable and relatable as Mickey would be playing in Motown, it certainly didn't hurt his case that he had a talented electric left arm to balance out his blue-collar image. And here we are, folks, as we bend baseball, space, and time, come out of this interdimensional wormhole to end up here in Portland, Oregon, on September 12, 1940, the day that Mickey Lowens was born, as I glance at today's newspaper, 
I can't help but notice the Tigers beat the Yankees on the strength of schoolboy Rose. Stellar pitching to keep the Motown Bengals a half game ahead of Cleveland in the 1940 AL pennant race. But I digress. Mickey Stephen Lowlitz was begotten by Steve Anthony Lowlitz and his mother, Marguerite, who were immigrants from Yugoslavia that settled down in Oregon. His father was the local parks director, which, that's got to be a pretty good gig, right? With all that the Oregon parks have to offer. I mean, you know, what a beautiful state there. Let's go Ducks. But anyway, Pops has his park director's gigs, and because of this, the young Mickey would develop into an outdoorsman and a top-flight athlete. Mickey has often reminisced about those moments in life and how he would literally throw stones at birds, rabbits, squirrels, anything that moved. Because of this habit, his arm strength developed into one of velocity and sniper-like precision. Pretty remarkable when you consider that Mickey was born a natural, born right-handed hurler who taught himself to pitch from the port side. When he was around two years old, he tipped his little mini-bike over and fell off, uh, he fell off, and the bike rolled on top of him, and the bike landed on his side, on his left side, and as a result, he injured his left arm and shoulder. When the cast was taken off that summer, he performed exercises to strengthen the torn muscles, and as his arm healed from the rehab, Mickey just naturally transitioned to his usually, uh, to his newly dominant left arm. And growing up, Lowlich began to love and play baseball, even though MLB is about 20 years away from setting up roots in the Pacific Northwest, Mickey gravitated to the New York Yankees because they were the only team that had a a national broadcast and presence in his region, so he grew up idolizing Yankee greats like Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford during the 1950s. In his youth, he served as the visiting bat boy for the Portland Beavers of the Pacific Coast League, where he meets influential baseball legends such as Lefty O'Dole and Emmett Ashford, who would go on to become the first African-American umpire in the major leagues. As a teenager, Lowlich was a force, dominating the local Babe Ruth and American Legion leagues, setting Oregon records for strikeouts that still stand today in 2023. His 1955 Babe Ruth team played in the Babe Ruth League World Series in Austin, Texas. And later that year, he leads his American Legion team to the League's World Series in Billings, Montana. Lowlich posted a 1905 record at Lincoln High School in Portland. And on June 30, 1958, the 17-year-old female was signed by the Detroit Tigers for $30,000 by scout Bernie DeBarrios. And I feel it's important to give you perspective. Uh, 30K in 1958 has the purchasing power of around $318,000 in the 2023 economy. So, when Lowlich reported to his first team in the minors, Nashville manager and Red Sox legend Johnny Pesky was hoping the talented but lanky Southpaw would put some meat on the bones as he stood about six foot one. And 160 pounds soaking wet. Displaying his trademark independent profile from that very first season, Lowlich reports late to spring training camp to take a civil service exam back in Portland. And he always had a backup plan of becoming a letter carrier should his arm fall off or, you know, if this baseball thing just doesn't work out. 
During a stop at AAA Denver, Mickey takes a line drive comebacker below his right eye, and his production suffered as, admittedly, in retrospect, he became a little gunshot in the bump. His refusal to accept the demotion would inadvertently lead him to learning a pitching style that, in turn, had an impact on his major league success. After three seasons of yo-yoing up and down on both sides of the double-A divide, Tigers GM Jim Campbell demoted Lowledge back to the A-ball Knoxville Smokies in 1962. Now, in Lowledge's four-year minor league career at this point, after being sent up and down the Tigers system, Mickey built a major disdain for Smokies manager Frank Carswell and the frustrated Southpaw uh, said screw this and flew him to Portland and informed the team that he was done with Major League Baseball. Shortly after the announcement, the game brings him back to his old stomping grounds as he is now towing the rubber for a semi-pro team, banning 16 batters in relief, which captures the attention of the Portland Beavers. Tigers GM Campbell, who still owned his Major League contract agrees to loan out his young pitcher to Portland for the remainder of the season. A 21-year-old re-energized Lowledge dominates the league, winning 10 games down the stretch, and it was there that team pitching coach Jerry Staley, a former big leaguer himself, advises the big-arm youngster to reign in his power game in favor of command. And Lowledge, to his credit, took heed to Staley's teachings and was brilliant in the 1963 Tigers spring camp. After a brief stint at AAA Syracuse, Mickey is promoted to Detroit in May, and it wasn't his big arm that set him apart from the more highly talented pitchers in the Tigers' bully. Team Vice President Rick Farrell was thrilled by the youngsters saying that that kid Lowlich is all business out there. He's got a plan, and I love the curveball that accentuates his, his fastball. And Mickey was slowly but surely developing into a pitcher and not just a thrower. Lowlich's major league debut came on May 12, 1963, as he came out of the bully for a 9-3 loss to Cleveland, striking out the first Indian, two Indian batters he faced in Max Alvis and Sam McDowell. Within a couple weeks, Tigers manager Bob Sheffing had penciled the 24-year-old into the starting rotation, and he earns his first victory on May 28th in a road game versus the Angels in a complete game, which was a trademark of his pitching style, as you will learn. He was an absolute horse. In 1964, manager Sheffling, uh, Sheffing is replaced by new skipper Charlie Dressen, as a scout in the Dodgers organization the previous years, he sat Mickey down and informed his beast that Lowlich is just overpower- overpowering opponents right now. And if you want to take your execution up to a new level, you need to stop tipping your pitches. And the shock pitcher listened as his manager informed him that when he was throwing curveballs, his arm delivery was exponentially lower than when he had come with the heat. The two of them would partner up, adopt a new consistent wind-up to mask his mechanical flaws. And with this new delivery, Lillard's performance did indeed hit another level, just as Dressen had promised. April 24, 1964, he blanks the Twins 5 to nothing for the first shutout of his career. 
on September 9th, he shuts out the Yankees and his childhood idol Whitey Ford, boarded up in the Tiger Stadium in one of his favorite, most memorable non-championship games of his storied career. During that same month, September of 64, Lulich went on a stretch of 30-2 and two in a third consecutive scoreless innings pitched. It was during the summer that Mickey met the love of his life when he met Joyce Feeder on an airline steward, uh, an airline stewardess from Hollywood, California. The two would tie the knot. I'm sorry, that's Hollywood, Florida. Yeah, I just looked it up. Hollywood, Florida. The two would tie the knot later that year on November 21st, and they are still together today. Mickey credits his wife for being the anchor of stability in his life. He called her even before every start and after every game was in the books. In 1965, Lulich's 15 wins were the fourth, fourth most in the American League, behind only South Paul's Jim Cat, Sam McDowell, and Whitey Ford. And sidebar, folks, four American League Southpaws with 15 or more wins in 1965. I'm not sure there's ever been a season where left-handed pitchers ruled the game with this much ferocity. Those poor right-handed hitters, right? I mean, left-handed hitters, right? His 226 strikeouts would be the second most in the American League. The first of four seasons where he would be runner-up in the AL strikeout category on May 29th. Lolich highlights this incredible season with a 10-inning complete game, one nothing shutout over the Tribe at Tiger Stadium. In 1966, Mickey became the first Tigers pitcher since Hal Newhouser to win back-to-back opening days. But, he battled inconsistencies all year, and he finished the season with a 14-14 record and a 4.77 ERA. He avenges his lackluster mediocrity with a sterling 1967 season that saw him establish himself as an elite starter in all of baseball, finishing the campaign off with a 28 and two-thirds consecutive scoring innings in a pennant chase uh, of the Red Sox that fell just short on the final day of the season. Though the Tigers would eventually bow down to Boston, it wasn't due to the play of Mickey. Down the stretch, he struck out 13 Red Sox in a game at Tiger Stadium, prompting Boston slugger George Scott to call him the best southpaw in the American League. He even won over White Sox manager and King Sourpuss Eddie Stanky, who once called Mickey a mere second-line arm, which is akin to calling someone in the back of the rotation, uh, uh, back of the rotation arm nowadays. He was forced to walk back his assessment by the end of the year, and he began comparing him to Hall of Fame left-hander Lefty Gomez. As a reservist in the Michigan Air National Guard, Lowlitz missed 15 days of the season when he was pressed into service to quell the domestic violence of the civil unrest that heated up in cities across the country and Detroit saw its share of riots as well and this was fueled by racial tensions. And there was actually blowback for the fan favorite pitcher as a result of this participation as we later found out that Mickey was the recipient of hate mail and death threats to him and his family allegedly in the name of the Black Panthers civil rights activist group. During the middle of the season he scuffles losing 10 straight games when his teammates only scored 19 points but he is certainly uh, he wasn't at his best as he posted a 5.09 ERA during that stretch but 
Lowlitz would, would restore his roar, going 9-1 and one in his last 11 appearances in 87 and two-thirds innings pitched. He strikes out 81 batters, walks 18, surrenders 50 hits to the tune of a 1.33 ERA. And Mickey would credit pitching coach Johnny Sane for his success as the two quickly became joined at the hip as more than just student and mentor. Sane's laid-back approach and his reluctance to give his starters the hook and appealed to Mickey and his independent nature. He also begins to fill out, uh, out his frame that year. People would get a goof on him, poking at his belly, calling him flabby, to which he would always retort back half-jokingly, it's all muscle, baby. Lowlich admits he had a big belly, but he argues it was due to his posture and it was really nothing he could do about it. He's also quick to point out that when he's going good, no one had anything to say about his weight, but the minute he would go through a tough stretch, fans would complain that he was out of shape. And I call this the uh, David Wells effect. I call it the Tony Gwynn effect, but I don't think he ever struggled. Nah, what, 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 what? I mean, did he? Okay, freaks. I tell you what, let's take a break here. Replenish with some fluids. Pay some bills. When I come back, I want to start the second and third acts of the Lulich bio, and I'd like to start that with a deep dive into the historic 1968 season of the eventual world champion Detroit Tigers, and Mickey Lulich is going to be a huge part of that magical season. So, sit tight, freaks. Please support the grassroots sponsors that support your grassroots baseball podcast flow. BRB Seamheads. See you on the other side of the break. Howdy, y'all. It's the Pod Squad, Gage Gear, executive producer of the Backwards K Pod. For the last few months, I've been telling you about our sponsor, Laparose Hand Cream a powerful trifecta of products that eliminates fish, seafood, and bait odors, as well as the spices on your hands from steamed crabs and delicious crawfish boils. And now, this amazing grassroots company has added a buffalo wing hand clean. These are the only soaps and wipes on the planet specifically formulated to be used after eating spicy foods or after a long day of fishing. Not only does the fish and hand cleaner get rid of bait funk, Crawfish hand cleaner, wing hand cleaner, removes the spicy things around your mouth and on your hands. An ingenious invention by a retired Navy shipmate of Jake. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is take care of family. Till the end of September, Laparose Hand Cleaner is offering all BKP listeners an amazing deal and hopes you give them a shot. It's a buy one, get one free deal. Hot wing hand cleaner wipes, fishing hand cleaner wipes, or soap, seafood hand cleaners. Buy one, get one. We only advertise products on Backwards Cave Pod that Jake and I believe in and use personally. After ripping up the golf course and watching football, there is nothing I love more than throwing some bait in the water and cracking a cold bud head. You can check out these amazing products by going to crawfishhandcleaner.com. Or you can call the home offices at 713-588-0290. To get that BOGO deal, please use the code SUMMER23. 
For your fishing, vacation you're planning, or the shellfish buffalo wing feast you're preparing, get yourself this groundbreaking product to protect you from smelly, spicy hands. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or call 713-588-0290. For the buy one, get one deal, use promo code SUMMER23. Fishing along the bank of your favorite river and listening to DKP sounds like a great idea. In fact, hey mom, where are my poles at? I'm gone fishing. There's a long fly ball. Way back, it might be out of here. Homer! Holy cow! I will box that one. Mickey Lewis, with one of the lowest lifetime batting averages in Major League history, has just hit one out of the ballpark. You know, when he got the first base, it looked like he couldn't believe it was going to come back to the plate. Watch this in this dugout now. <laughs> look at the, look at the grin. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's what makes baseball the fascinating, unpredictable game it is. You never know from what source. There's Eddie McLean. He can't believe it. Pitching career, we were talking about former Tiger Southpaw pitcher Mickey Lolich. He was born in Oregon to parents of Yugoslavian descent. He's always been an outdoorsman and athlete, as his father worked for the park services in his hood. And as a kid, uh, Lolich spent much of his time running through the Oregon forest, throwing rocks at anything that moved. And from a very young age, he had an above average arm in comparison to his peers. In fact, Lolich was a natural-born right-hander, but a minibike accident as a toddler caused him to rehab his offhand, and it grew so strong that Lolich just up and switched one day to throwing left-handed. After dominating the Babe Ruth and American Legion Leagues as a kid, he is signed by the Detroit Tigers in 1958 for $30,000. For the next four years, the tall, lanky pitcher shows promise but he goes up and down the system after a demotion to single-A ball. Mickey decides 
He's not a fan of Smokey's manager, Frank Carswell, and he tells Tiger officials he is done with Major League Baseball, and he returns home to Portland to play Sandlot Ball, where he is a dominating pitcher that's just simply overmatching hitters throughout the league. The uh, Tigers agree to loaning Lulich out to the team for the 1963 season, and manager Jerry Staley teaches Lulich to rein himself in by sacrificing power for command. Mickey finds his groove, takes his lessons to heart, and upgrades his game to a new level. And a year later, he's on the Tigers' big club, and he is slowly but surely making a name for himself as one of the elite left-handed pitchers in the big. By 1967, he is elite, as are the Tigers, and they lose the AL pennant to the Red Sox on the last day of the season, setting up that historical summer of 1968 in Motown. In 1968, the Young Tigers are the best team in American League, coming from behind that incredible season to win several games along the way to the pennant in the year of the pitcher. Lolich had an impressive season, going 17-9 with a 3.19 ERA, 197 strikeouts, and 220 innings pitched. But his effort was overshadowed by teammate Denny McLean and his 31 wins. Becoming the first pitcher since Dizzy Dean in 1934 to stack at least 30 wins in a campaign and the only pitcher to accomplish the feat in the modern integrated game. It was the Bengals, uh, Motown Bengals' first World Series appearance since 1945 and they would square up again against the defending world champion St. Louis Cardinals. And Freaks, if you never had a chance to watch the 1968 series, I highly suggest that one day, this winter, when you're jonesing for some seams, go to your Google machine and bring up the video on that. You won't be disappointed, as it is certainly on my top ten list of World Series I've ever seen. And if you go to YouTube, they have every single game of that series. Incredible, incredible series. Game one of that series saw... 31 game winner Denny McLean matched up with Bob Gibson, who compiled a 1.12 ERA that season, the lowest ERA baseball had seen since 1914, to go along with his 22 regular season wins. Both aces were on point, holding the other side scoreless until the Cardinals played three runs against Denny in the fourth via two singles, two walks, and an error. Gibby, meanwhile, had 10 strikeouts before the first Tiger reached scoring position, and he was just getting started, as the national television audience had shivers running up their spines as the intensity and focus of the Cards right-hander was on full display throughout the baseball universe. He wiggles out of the six-inning jam with a strikeout and then fans three of the next four baddies, putting him 1K behind Sandy Kopach's single-game record with one inning to go. After allowing a leadoff single in the ninth, Gibson overpowers Hall of Famer Al Kaline for his 15th strikeout to tie Koufax. The next batter, Norm Cash, flails at the heat for the record-setting 16th strikeout. And the last batter of the game, Willie Horton, is frozen pizza with a backwards K to round out Gibby's phenomenal performance in the 4-0 shutout. And Game 2... 
Mickey rights the ship with a complete game, six hit, eight to one win to even the series. Lolich, who was a 110 hitter with no home runs under his belt, has often quit about his lack of offensive prowess, saying, I would have pitched against more hitters like me. Well, he goes two for four with a run, two RBIs, and a walk at the plate. And in the top of the third, Lonich steps to the plate to face pitcher Nelson Bryles and does something he had never done before when he smacks a home run. And it would be the only thing, it would be the only time he would ever do it again. In game three, K-Line hits a two-run blast to put Detroit up two to nothing in the third, but Tim McCarver and Orlando Cepeda drop three-run dong, and the Redbirds cruise to a 7-3 victory to go up two games to one. In game four, McLean is again outdueled by Gibson, who gave up five hits, struck out ten in a ten-to-one romp, and now the Tigers... Oh, I'm sorry. Now the Cards have a three games to one advantage and are on the verge of winning back-to-back titles. So, with the season on the line in Game Five, Lowlich falls behind three to nothing in the first inning after his pregame routine and the bully is disturbed before taking the hill. Now, fortunately for Detroit. Mickey composes himself, shuts the cards down the rest of the way, leading the Tigers to a five-three victory with an eight-strikeout performance and his second complete game of the series. Cards hurler Gibson, as well as Mickey, was going for win number three in the series, and again, Lolich chipped in surprisingly with the lumber, starting off a three-run rally in the seventh with a blue single. And the biggest threat to the Tigers' win came in a potential six-inning jam. But Lowlich was able to pick off both Lou Brock and Kirk Flood after singles. He stole two bases against Lowlich and uh, Freehan and the Tigers there in game two. Look at that lead he had. Certainly are going to throw over. And there he goes the other way. Out! That's the play that worked here earlier in the series, but not this time. He just dared him to make that throw to first. Cash fired down to Stanley, and they have the tag on him. He just dared him. Look at that lead. Different angle. See that big lead? He dared him to make the throw to first, and as the ball hit it at first, he was going to break the second and grab it. But Cash has a perfect strike down to Stanley to get him. A big play for the Tigers now to rub Brock off. They get him picked off. What is cut off first base? There's McAuliffe now, and Lovitz running him down the other way. Everybody's handled the ball, and he is tagged out finally by Mickey Stanley. One, three, four, one, six of your scoring. The Southpaw became just the 12th pitcher in Major League Baseball history to win three games in a series, as well as the last pitcher to date to win three complete games in World Series history. 
His amazing series was good enough to win series MVP honors. Riding off the wave of 1968, Mickey has a dominant 1969 season with 19 wins and his first All-Star appearance. His 271 strikeouts were third highest total in Tigers history behind Denny McLean's 280 in 1968 and Hal Newhouser in 1946. Two times that year, he had stellar 16 strikeout games uh, and they, you know, that's, that was his career high. In 1971, his 308 strikeouts paced the league. He started 45 games that year, completed 29 of those contests, logging an astounding 376 innings pitched that year. Much of the credit for his success in 1971, Lowell's credits to pitching coach Johnny Sane, who introduced the veteran left-hander to the cut fastball. Now, get this, freaks. From 1971 to 1974, Lowitz had reached the 300 innings pitch threshold four years in a row. That's amazing, folks. If a pitcher pitches over 200 innings nowadays, they're considered a Clydesdale. Roly-poly here had four consecutive seasons of at least 300 innings pitched. In 1972... He puts another brilliant season on his resume, winning 22 games and leading the Tigers back to the post with his final regular season start against the Red Sox in Tigers Stadium that year, striking out 15 to clinch the AL East pennant. And as usual, Mickey the Horse, he pitched in 41 games, completed 23 of them that season. He finished third in Cy Young voting behind winner Gaylord Perry and runner-up Wilbur Wood. In the playoffs versus the dynastic Oakland A's of the early 1970s, Mickey was brilliant with a 1.42 ERA and two starts, but he lost one game and was a no decision in the other as the Tigers fell to the A's in five games. His pitching philosophy was always quite simple. Stay ahead of the hitters and let them get themselves out. Throughout most of his career, he used his curveball to set up that fastball and cut fastball. That that kind of moved like a slider, and it always, you know, was just there to keep those hitters off balance. Mickey went on to fan more batters, 2,679, than any other AL Southpaw until Lefty Carlton and Randy Johnson passed him more than three decades after he threw his last pitch. Lowlands captured 16 victories in both 1973 and 1974. And on May 25th, 1975, he picks up his 200th win versus the White Sox in a range-shortened affair after seven innings out of Comiskey Park. Even though he achieved the milestone, the 1975 season is one of frustration for Mick. With the Tigers on the way to the most dismal season in more than two decades, Mickey goes through a stretch of 14 games from July 11th to September 13th, where his offense scores a total of 14 runs during the span. He goes 1-13 during the stretch, which includes a 19-game losing streak by July 11th. His record stands at 10.05 with a 3.33 ERA, and by September 13th, his record was 11-18, and his ERA was only 3.88. On September 20th, he picks up the win when the Tigers offense gives him five runs to work with, but it would be his last game in a Detroit uniform. After the conclusion of the 1976 season, I'm sorry, 75 season, Mickey Lolich is traded to the New York Mets in one of the most unpopular real-time trades in Tigers history. 
Mickey never took to the Big Apple as he was constantly at odds with the team trainer and the pitching coach. And he goes 8-13 with a 3.22 ERA. At the end of the year, Lulich is absolutely turned off by the Mets organization that he re- you know, it's so bad that he retires to get out of the last two years of the deal. And after sitting out for a year, Mickey would come back, sign with the San Diego Padres, and with a young Friars club, he performed well on the 1970 Bully, going 2-1 in 20 games with a 1.66 ERA. The following offseason, he adds a knuckleball to his repertoire, but after an inconsistent 1979 season, Lowlitz retires and returns to his home in Michigan. In 2003, Lowlitz was one of 26 players selected to the final ballot of the Hall of Fame Veterans Committee. He received 13 points, uh, votes, placing him well below the 75% required for induction. In 2005 and 2007, Lowlitz was one of the few players to appear on the Hall's veteran ballot, but he fell way short of enshrinement. And folks, I think that's where... I'm going to close the book on Mickey Lolich's bio. I hope you enjoyed listening to his story as much as I love presenting it to you. And I promise you, heads, I'll try to be better next next week. Uh, before I go all young MC and bust a move out of here, let's take a look at those oh-so-lovely Mickey Lolich career stats. Mickey Stephen Lowlitz, born September 12, 1940 in Portland, Oregon. Let's go, Ducks. So, on this day that the pod drops into the baseball universe, Mickey will surely be spending his 83rd birthday with his lovely wife, Joyce, somewhere. Thank you for your contributions to the game. And happy birthday, Mickey. 16-year MLB career with the Tigers, Mets, and Padres. His 48 war is tied with Louisiana Lightning Ron Guidry from the Yankees for the 115th best mark in the history of the game. He appeared in 586 games, 496 starts, 15,140 batters faced, the 63rd most batters faced by a pitcher in baseball history. He had 195 complete games to his credit, which is nearly 40% of all of his starts. And he never once had arm issues that would force him to miss playing time. 41 of those complete games were shutouts, which is the 41st most in baseball history. And that ties him with Hippo Vaughn and Mickey Welch. A career win-loss record of 217 wins, 191 losses with a 3.44 ERA. His 2,832 career strikeouts is the 23rd most in the history of the game and the third most for a southpaw behind only Steve Carlton and Randy Johnson. A 3.20 FIP, a 1.23 WHIP, and a 104 ERA Plus. 1968 World Series MVP and a three-time All-Star. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seamen of all ages, this is the story of Roly Poly Mickey Lowich. And look, folks, I will never charge you for the baseball content here at Backwards K Pod. Never gonna happen. No Twitch, no Patreon, no pay to play subscriptions. 
I'm just going to put in the work, find other ways. I'm re-energized, refocused. I have some great things on the horizon for both this show and the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network brand in the near future, so keep an ear out. I'm just going to keep coming through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like my dude Gunnar Henderson. Number two is a monster. He reminds me of George Brett. Love that fucking guy. So, with the Mickey Lolich bio getting smaller and smaller in the distance, I turn my back to our never-say-die baseball hydra. I unsheath my blade from my kimono, and I chop the head off that beast, only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. Next week, I'll be taking a deep dive into the life and career of one of the most popular players of the 1980s and certainly one of the greatest second basements who ever lived. I'm talking Mr. Ryan Sandberg. Rhino. Going to North Chicago to learn about the all-time great. Man, I can't wait. But look, you already know the deal. That's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod where... We collect ball players and their stories. So look, freaks, if you're leaving the Denver area, or maybe you're planning a ski vacation out to the Rockies, you should check out my dudes, Bruce and Danny, at the National Ballpark Museum on Blake Street. Just a long fly ball from Coors Field. They got some of the coolest old school and modern ballpark paraphernalia around. And they would love to answer any questions you may have as you walk through this baseball time portal. And they even play yours truly over the speakers as you check out these sites. As, you know, they're both huge BKP fans. So, by all means, that's my dudes, Bruce and Danny, out at the National Ballpark Museum on Blake Street in Denver, Colorado. Go check them out. So, look, I'm about to twist this up like travel to Whitaker and get these passengers back to Terrapin Station. I'm all tangled up in the web, bruh. Please remember to share with all your C-Man buddies. Rate and review as you see fit. I ain't scared. Parents, if you see the kids sitting on the couch, watching TV, playing with the phones, looking bored, and unproductive AF, by all means, take those little monkeys outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillenbrand told me in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo last year, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. See you next week, freaks, with the Ryan Sandberg bio. Peace!